All right, friends, we're going to continue our series that we started last week called Flourish, looking at relationships. We saw last week that we were made from relationship and we're made for relationship. And relationship is where we get some of our greatest joys and they're the place of some of our greatest struggles. And so we're going to look at different relationships in which we find ourselves in to do what Jesus called us to do. To love one another as I, Jesus says, has loved you. By this kind of love, it's going to be a distinctive, by this kind of love, all people will know that you're my disciples. So I'm going to teach you a way of love, as I've modeled for you, that will be a distinctive, that when the world sees you, they'll be able to say, that person must follow Jesus. Look at the way they love. They'll be able to spot a Christian because of the way they love. And so today we're going to look at the relationship of marriage. I know it's cold outside. And you're like, I came to church, I didn't want to come to church, and now we're going to talk about marriage. Oh, I so don't want to be here. I'm really glad you're here. I know in a room this size, there are all sorts of stories when it comes to marriage. And there's a lot of hardship with marriage. And so what we're going to look at is what is the North Star of marriage. And then we're going to ask the Lord to help us in each of our marriages. Now, not everyone in the room is married. There are people that are single that want to be married. There are singles that don't want to be married. There are people that were married that are no longer married. And so I'm just praying that God would use what he has given to us to speak to each of us of how we are to respond in our own marriages, in the marriages for others, or even in future marriages that we will be in. Now, I clicked on some clickbait online this week. I know you're not supposed to do that, but the headlines just get you. And the headline was 21 or so things that millennials no longer have to learn about. And so it was looking at those who are 40 and under, what things that they no longer have to concern themselves with learning. And one of them was balancing a checkbook. Like no one really accepts checks. No one really writes checks. In fact, you don't even have to balance a checkbook of what's in your checking account because it automatically tells you on all the apps. And so that's obsolete. They said, okay, another thing that millennials, those who are under 40, don't have to learn anymore is how to use a payphone. Is you have your cell phone, it's always in your pocket, you don't remember anyone's name, you don't have to look up a phone number in a phone book and find their name and number and call, put quarters in, how many quarters, how far is this phone call. Another thing that says you don't have to learn how to use a map anymore. With Google Maps, Apple Maps, Waze, you just simply type in an address and all you got to do is just follow the next direction. You don't have to look at a map and learn where you are on that and how to get somewhere. At the top of the list, the number one thing that millennials no longer have to learn about is marriage. Interesting. And it's, it's not odd that it happened because Barna... Because Pew Research has been asking the younger generations, what are their attitudes towards marriage? And remember back in 2020, Pew did a big research and showed that the attitudes towards marriage amongst those who are 40 and younger has really shifted from what their parents and grandparents thought. In fact, they've really come to a place in which they really reject what they have is, is this idea of marriage. And talking to them, part of their rejection of marriage is kind of on two poles. One is looking at the past and saying, okay, when I look at my grandparents, when I look at people before them, marriage was out of utility. Like there wasn't a lot of men you knew or a lot of women you knew. There's probably one or two that were born and raised in the same town that were even viable for marriage. And marriage provided you with some safety, security, provided with uh, financial opportunities, offspring to be able to grow your family, maybe run the farm or a business. 
but we have evolved past the utility of marriage and we will no longer need it as it has been practiced. There's many other ways in which to experience the security, the fulfillment, the, the opportunities. And so they reject the utility of marriage. On the other side of things, they say, okay, the, the more modern idea is this romantic idea of the psychology of marriage, meaning like this person completes me, fulfills me, satisfies me, makes me feel so warm and fuzzy until they don't. And they say, okay, well, we're going to reject both of this because we know we don't need marriage to get these things out of it. And so we're rethinking marriage altogether. And this idea of one person for one lifetime is incredibly outdated. You're going to live longer than you should be married to one person. You should have more of an open marriage as well. And so many younger people are rethinking this idea of marriage. And the rejection of it is both, both based on its utility and its psychology of it. But the Bible doesn't present marriage as either of these things. And so when, when younger people say, okay, I think marriage is an outdated tradition, that's not what the Bible calls it. A tradition is man-made. Outdated means it has a place in time and it no longer serves a purpose. The Bible describes marriage in a fundamentally different way. I want to give you a vision of marriage that perhaps you could grab towards and fall in love with. And so what the Bible says is marriage is not the outcome of human desire. It's not tradition. It is a good gift from God for human flourishing. That, that God created humanity and marriage is an essential part of the relationship that human beings are going to have. Not everyone will be married. But it is a part of being human that's actually for its flourishment. And it's not an invention. It's not something that people came up with. It's a gift. It's designed for two people to be in. And so what I want to look at is what is that design? Let's go to the story in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to go all the way to Genesis chapter 2 where it describes God having created Adam and the animals and created the stars and the, and the moon and the sun and created all the beings in the, in the sea. He now sees something that is void. This is chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord said, it is not good that man, this is Adam, should be alone. So he sees humanity in isolation and says, that's not a good thing for humanity. It won't cause flourishing. And one of the relationships, not the only one, we're going to talk about friendship and singleness in the weeks ahead. But one of the relationships that he creates is marriage. It says, not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And as soon as you read that word helper, you're like, see, this is why the Bible is super derogatory towards women. He calls them helper. As though women are some sort of clerical assistant to men. Like they can't get organized and we need some help here. But that's not what helper means. The word helper is azer. Azer is used 19 times in your Old Testament. 16 of those times are a description of God. The description of how God helps, particularly rescues and delivers his people who are in trouble. The help is a rescuing, delivering help. And all the women in the room go, yeah, that makes more sense. <laughs> like the fellas are going to need that kind of help. Most famous is when Samuel sees the rescue that God has for his people. And he names this rock Ebenezer. Ezer is the, is the root word. The rock of help. God is my rock of help. And so help is not clerical assistant. Help is deliverer, rescuer. It's an attribute of who God is to his people. And the, the key is that it's fitting. 
that it works. Because everything else he's created is not fit for man. It's not fit for him. Look at verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever a man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Why was there not found a helper fit for Adam? Because he's not an animal. I know you think that's basic knowledge, but today it's, it's not. You are a human being. You're not an animal. And that's why you can't find someone, a companion, in the animal, animal kingdom. It's that you are the image bearer of God. Men and women in equality are made as image bearers of God. And so the, the woman is not found amongst the animals. She's not an animal either. So verse 21, so the Lord caused a deep sleep fall to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And that rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought to the man. And this woman is created out of the side of man for the man. It's a companion. It's a quality. What you're seeing is God taking intentional time to create and fashion and design another human being. All the women in this room, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God took extra time on you. And then he brings this man and woman together. And we're going to see what he brings together is this marriage. So then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Right? This is my equal. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So therefore, because a man and a woman will be brought together in this sort of union, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so the, the goal of marriage is that this man would then depart from his family, and his ultimate allegiance wouldn't be to his mom anymore. Or his dad, in crisis and struggle, doesn't call mom and dad. He, his primary allegiance is to his wife. And she likewise departs from her family and has primary allegiance with her husband. And they become one flesh. Two become one. And the very beginning marriage becomes a picture of who God is. Is oneness with distinction. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, oneness with distinction. And marriage is a display who God is like. That's why marriage really matters. That's why we take it so seriously. Is it's displaying to the world oneness with uniqueness. In every marriage ceremony that I've given, I take time to talk about oneness because I think it's the fundamental aspect of a Christian marriage. It's not sameness, it's oneness. It's two distinct people coming together to make something altogether new. I talk about this with, with metals. And one metal you have is zinc. Zinc is a very helpful metal. It's medicinal. It's probably found in your, you know, multivitamin. You need it in your body. But it's an ugly metal. You have copper. It's a beautiful metal. It's, it's a good conduit. It's a good conductor. But it's really, really soft and easily bent and broken. But if you take copper and you take zinc and you bring them together in an alloy metal, you create, do you know? Brass. And brass is both beautiful 
and strong. It's bold. What do you do with brass? You make instruments out of brass because you can polish them. They're gorgeous and they're durable. On every 14er in the state of Colorado, there is a landscape marker or an elevation marker to indicate what mountain, what the elevation is. Do you know what that marker is made out of? It's brass. Why? Because it's brilliance, helps you find it, it's beautiful, and its strength endures the harshest climates of Colorado. Freezing days like today, hot summers, the winds and the storms. And so this is a picture of marriage. If two become one, they become something beautiful and bold to weather every single storm in life. And what you get is this picture here where it says, and the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. It's a picture of two human beings being fully known, exposed to another, and there's no embarrassment. There's no threat to them. And so they're fully exposed, fully known to his wife, and he no, has no shame. And she is fully exposed and fully known to her husband, and there's no reason to hide. There's no threat to her. This is a picture of a beautiful marriage in which God has brought together, in which there is no sin. And so just imagine a marriage like that. I think of all the things that maybe you haven't told your spouse in detail, because that would expose you. The things that you've said or done or viewed, the imaginations that you have. You wouldn't dare find yourself fully naked and exposed, for it would bring shame. But here's a picture of marriage in its perfect harmony, no threat to one another. Now, it doesn't last, it doesn't seem terribly long, because in chapter 3, God's adversary shows up. And the adversary is the one who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy the things of God. He hates the things of God. And the first thing that he goes after is marriage. Goes right after this man and woman in this union that God has brought them in together. And the first thing he wants to deposit is the seeds of doubt. Can you really trust the ways of God? Like the ways in which God has designed you and wired you and brought you together, and he's called good. Don't call that good. Throw that off. Define for yourself what is good, what is right, what is beautiful. Don't listen to him. And what we see is that Adam and Eve follow this deception and try to throw off the things of God and try to define what's right and wrong and good for themselves. And just as God warned, death came in. That's the result of sin. And death is separation. Death, first and foremost, is separation between God. And we see that humanity then is separated from God. And where there was harmony and and joy of being with God. Now there's fear. And so when God shows up, they're hiding. And then there's division within oneself. They know they're naked and they're embarrassed and ashamed. And, and they try to clothe themselves and hide themselves. And then you see that there is a distinction or distortion in their relationship as they begin to blame one another. This person is now a threat to me. And so what we see in Genesis 3 as a result of this, describing the death, describing this curse that we live in now, one in particular note is of marriage. And God is speaking to the serpent. Here's cursed are you because this happened. And he talks to Eve, cursed are you because this happened. Talks to the man, this is cursed to you because this has happened. And speaking to Eve, he says this. This is chapter 3, verse 16b. He says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you. This is, this is a curse. Another translation puts it, your desire shall be not contrary, but to control your husband, and he will dominate you. 
If you've ever seen a marriage or lived in a marriage in which the wife tries to manipulate and control her husband and he uses his physical strength or potentially financial strength historically to dominate her, you're looking at a marriage under the curse. It's a bad marriage. You don't want to be in that marriage. I don't want to be in that marriage. That's a cursed marriage. And it becomes a power struggle where the other person then becomes the threat to my success. It's a zero-sum game. A zero-sum game is there's a fixed pie. And in order for me to get a bigger slice means that you have to have a lesser slice. And I don't want the smallest slice, so I'm going to make sure that I don't get the smallest slice. And so you're in competition with your spouse for who has control, who has authority, who's in charge. It's part of the curse, part of the fall, it's part of sin and death in our marriages. And God has come to restore all things. And one of the things that he wants to restore is what he created that was beautiful and good, which was marriage. And so Jesus comes to show us the way to restore our marriages so that our spouse is not a threat, that we're not in competition with them for authority and for power and for influence. And he comes and shows us how to do marriage by how he loves the church. Jesus calls the church his bride. And so the ways in which he has loved the church, that's us, is the way in which he has loved his spouse. And then husbands and wives both look to Jesus now to learn how do we love one another as Jesus loved us and put on display to the world a very distinct kind of love that people would say, looking at that marriage, that looks like a Christian marriage. They're not threatened by each other. They're not in competition with each other. She's not trying to rule him. He's not dominating her. What's the distinctive? Oh, it's, it's how they love. And Jesus has taught them how to love. So we were looking at Colossians last week. Paul talks about this in brevity in Colossians. He expands more on it in a letter he writes to the Ephesians of how we are to love our spouse. How do we reverse the curse? So that our spouse is no longer a threat to us. So chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes this. This is a passage that many pastors don't ever want to open because it causes a lot of problems. I figured, why not, you know? It's already cold today. All right. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. So who are we to imitate? Culture? Pop ideas? New fads? No, we imitate God. So we're, we're practicing the ways that God has shown us to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are to walk in the way of love. Remember, love like Jesus. That's what this, this whole series is about. How did Jesus love us? Well, it says right here, he gave himself up for us. So the way in which we're going to love one another is to give up ourselves. We're going to give up our preferences. We're going to give up our rights. We're going to give up ourselves unto another, a beloved, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. So you're going to submit yourself to one another, and then you're going to sacrifice for one another. This is a distinct kind of love. And so he talks about how it plays out in multiple relationships in Ephesians 5, speaking directly into the church of how we are to submit to one another. And then he highlights marriage as an example of this to the community. So chapter 5, 
verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the reason we're doing this isn't even for her, isn't for him, it's for Christ. I'm going I'm to love this way for Christ. Christ is the object of my truest affections. So submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Connecting this to the Genesis account. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So then Paul takes it to a whole other level and says, okay, I'm talking about Loving relationships, then we're going to highlight marriage, how do wives and husbands love each other. And I'm going to tell you, this is actually not about you. It's about how God loves the church. And so marriage is not only a picture of who God is, one with distinction, but it's actually a picture of the gospel. How does God love us? And so the very first gospel story of compassion, forgiveness, grace, sanctification, transformation, is your marriage story that you're telling your children. The very first gospel your children will ever witness and read is your marriage. The first gospel story that your co-worker is ever going to see is your marriage. How do you talk about her? How do you speak about him? How do you resolve conflict? See, it's not about your marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church and to display his love for us, he's putting on display marriages. That raises the bar, doesn't it? That's so far from a me marriage. And so first he talks about husbands, I think. We should, or we should talk about first about the husbands. Because he has this role of headship. And headship gets connected to authority. And all of a sudden it gets distorted and abused. And Jesus points out, man, the world, man, they love positions of authority because it's all about them. This is what he says, Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. Jesus called to him and said, you know that the rulers, the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So husbands, love your wives as Christ has modeled love for you. Not like the Gentiles who love positions of authority, 
because it's all about them who can serve them. No, love like I have loved you and give your life away to your wife. Serve her in a way that is so sacrificial that she becomes something that she would not have otherwise become. The word for that is flourishing. So here's the model that Jesus gives for us, for husbands and wives, that Jesus Christ loved us. And his love for us is that he served us. That he came down low. He's not looking for, what can I get out of this? What can they do for me? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give himself away. So he goes low and he serves to Calvary, to the cross, unto death. He gave himself away. I often talk to husbands about this paradigm, which seems impossible, to love your wife like Christ loved the church. And they say, how long do I have to do that for? She's not responding to any of my actions towards her. I said, well, Jesus is our model. He did it until they crucified him. So you do it until she kills you. (laughs) I know that's not appetizing. It's the call of the husband. See, headship is not, oh, man, I'm so in the place of leadership and authority and all of the people in my household serve me. It's like Christ giving himself up unto death so that, then you see, that the church might be exalted. The church goes up. And what you see is the church in splendor. What you see is the church flourishing. So Christ serves unto death that his bride might flourish. And he says, husbands, in your relationships with your wives, you serve like I served you. And so headship, leadership, is chief sacrificer of the family. Like somebody has to eat last. It's the husband. Someone goes last. Someone's needs are met last. That's the role of husband. It's not this role of like, man, look at me. No, it's of Christ's model unto death for the church for her. That he might present her without spot or blemish, without wrinkle. And so husband, let me ask you, have you spent any time in the last seven days thinking, imagining, planning, how do I help my wife flourish? Like what can I put in our calendar? What resources can I allocate there? What what environments can I make sure that she's in? What space does she need so that she would flourish? Even at a cost to myself, it doesn't matter. Because my aim in my marriage is the flourishment of my wife. That's what husbands do. Now wives are equally called to look to Jesus. Jesus is the example. Not counting equality with God something to be grasped, Paul says. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. That's surrender. Not taking on the form of a servant. He served the church. And then what does God do? He exalts him. And so wives also look to Jesus. Teach me how do I come down and respect my husband who's not respectable. And how do I follow his gentle, humble leadership? How do I follow this? Now, that, now, does submit mean to be, like, abused? No. Does it mean to, like, follow him into anything that's even criminal? No. He's like, hey, the tax person's coming. I kind of told him some stuff. You got to, like, corroborate my story. He's like, I ain't doing that. 
I'm, I'm accountable to God. I have to obey and follow God before I follow you. I'm not following you into criminal activity. If he shows up in your marriage and he has seen things online that are perverted and tries to bring them into your marriage, do you just follow him into that? No, that's not this. What is it? It's loving your husband as Christ loved you. Not counting equality something to be held on to and grasped and fought for, but emptied himself. Coming to serve so that the church would flourish. And so likewise, men and women look to Jesus. Jesus, how do you do this? Teach me to do this. I don't know how to do this. Jesus is the example for both husband and wife of how to love our spouses. Our aim in marriage is oneness and to cause the other to flourish. Would you grade your marriage? The aim is oneness and flourishing. Now, if that's not our aim, what can happen is a drift. And the drift in the beginning doesn't seem like a big deal. But it, over time, being one degree or two degrees off will get you a place you don't want to be. And so on, on your wedding day, you stood before this man, this woman, this company before God, and you looked at each other in their eyes and you're like, I can't believe we're getting married. Like you're the only person for me. I can't imagine being married to anyone else. You're my soulmate. Like you were made for me, soulmates. And then life happens. And hardships in life grow and financial commitments grow. And, and kids oftentimes show up in marriages. And all of a sudden the complexity of schedules go. And you drift because your intentionality is not oneness and flourishing. You drift from being soulmates to teammates. And teammates immediately don't sound bad. It's like, hey, we have a common vision, a common goal, and we're both working towards it. And so you take the kids there. I'll take the kids there. I'll feed them. You feed them. You go to this job. I'll go to this job. We're like two ships passing in the night. And immediately it doesn't seem like a big deal. But because you're no longer interested in, in helping your spouse flourish and oneness, you drift again. And over time you go from soulmate to teammate to roommate. And so, yeah, you're sharing the same bed, which is like you don't do that with anyone else. You don't want to sleep next to anybody else. You sleep next to them. Maybe there's intimacy. Maybe there's not. But functionally you're roommates. You're paying the bills together, making life happen together. But nobody's flourishing. In fact, you move again from being roommates to housemates. And maybe this is when the kids graduated and left the house finally. And you think in your mind, well, my covenant with her was that I would, I would live with her unto death. And that wasn't it. It was that you would love her unto death. And so you've made this commitment like, we're staying in the same house. For all optical reasons, we're married. But nobody's flourishing. And in fact, you're trying to find other places to help you flourish. Trying to help find other places that will make you feel loved. Or other places that make you feel respected. And so then you move again, you drift from being a soulmate to a teammate to a roommate to a housemate to separate. This is, this is, he's my problem. She's my problem. I got to get this out of my life. And then you get to a place you're like, how did we get here? Like how did we get from the altar 
there's not another person in the world. So like, I, there's not another person in the world that I can be with. I can't be with this person. This is the only person in the world I can't be with. It's because we lost a vision of marriage, which is the man is the chief sacrificer of the family, that his wife would flourish. And she surrenders herself like Christ did, that he would flourish. And I get it. Nobody wants to do it. I totally get it. This is impossible. Apart from being in Christ. The only way this is possible is if Christ is loving your spouse through you. Remember, the object is, is Jesus Christ, that we look to him, not simply our spouse. So, Lord, I want to love you, and so I will love him. I want to love you, and so I will love her. And what happens in marriage, this is the gift of marriage that very few people want, is transformation. Marriage transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. It forces transformation on us so that we look more like Jesus than we did in our singleness, in our selfishness that we bring into the marriage. See, many people come to marriage saying, I want my wife to complete me. My wife doesn't complete me. She does refine me. Like all my sharp edges get refined with my wife. That's a beautiful thing, to be changed, to become more humble and compassionate, teachable, gracious, generous. What your spouse is working out of you are the things that we were called last week to put off. And so the biblical model of marriage is oneness for flourishing. Imagine if here at Calvary we had the best marriages. That around town people said, man, that marriage is so good. Look how she loves him. Look how he loves him, loves her. Look how they get along. Look how they forgive. Look how they resolve conflict. Just look at their marriage. They must be Christians. Now, I know that on that spectrum, from soulmate to separate, there are, there are all of us in the room somewhere. And there are of us who wish our marriages were different, wish our spouses were different. Maybe you're on your third marriage. And I want to tell you, this is the right place for you. There's no, there's no condemnation for you here. There's no ridicule for you here. We are all in process of being transformed into Jesus. What there is here is grace for everyone in the room to say, Lord, teach me what the next right step is forward. If I want to love like Jesus, this is where I'm at, Jesus. A great mentor of mine said, well, I guess we're going to have to lose all hope of a better past, Thomas. Like, yeah, we're going to have to give all hope of a better past. This is where I'm at. All right, Jesus, I want to follow you from this moment forward. And Jesus doesn't ridicule you. He doesn't shame you. He takes you where you are and shows you the next move forward. And so this is a great place to be no matter where you are on that spectrum. Here's four things that I think we should all commit ourselves to if we are married this week. The first is this, that we humbly apologize. 
for all the ways in which we have not loved our spouse like Christ has loved us. And we know this. When we were self-seeking, when we were arrogant, when we used our spouse, abused our spouse so that we could get what we wanted, we would just come to him and say, I am so sorry. And husbands, you need to go first in this. Maybe this is a written letter to just acknowledge how I have not lived as Christ to you. Would you forgive me for this? It takes humility. It takes going low. The second thing is that you would generate a list of three ways that you could help your spouse flourish. It probably hasn't been on top of mind. I want it to grow to be top of mind. What are three things that you can do this week, this month, intentionally plan for to help your husband, help your wife flourish? Do they need space? They need time. They, they, you know, whatever it is, are, are you a reluctant husband to join a life group because you hate him, but you know she's starving for community? Jump into one. What can you do to help your spouse flourish? Number three, know what your spouse is praying for. Ask them, do you know what your spouse is praying for? You know what they're journaling in their journals? You know what they're asking God for? Do you, do you know that? That's, that's intimacy. Ask them, what, are, what have you been praying for? And then pray with them and pray for them. And then last, I would just say that you would want to take time to plan, to invest, to mature. Let me ask you, what arena in life are you just crushing it in? Like you get all the kudos in it. Maybe it's sports. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's with designing your house or, or building something. Well, let me ask you, how much time did it take to get there? What books did you read? Mentors did you have? Retreats or conferences did you go to? What was the last thing you did to plan, invest, and mature your marriage? Or was the last thing you did in your marriage say, I do? Let's take intentional time. This is the most important relationship in your life if you're married. So what book might you read? What devotional are you going to go through? What community might you be part of? What counsel would you seek? A mentor, couple, whatever. If we can help you, just indicate that. We would love to help you invest in your marriage so that it would mature over time. Let's halt the drift and move towards Jesus Christ. No matter where, no matter where we are today. Let's pray. Father, it's hard talking about marriage these days. And I personally feel so convicted of my high call to love my wife as Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. It's a high call and a bar for husbands and wives, but Lord, this is the way in which we flourish to reverse the curse that our spouse is a threat to us. And so, Lord, would you give men and women in this room humility to walk in this? The humility of Jesus Christ. Would you give us courage to walk this way when a world ridicules it? And may we find our identity, value, dignity in you, Jesus. In the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, we pray this. Amen.